Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Manhattan. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a glass of sangria, and on today's episode, we're exploring the story of Mary Bell, Britain's youngest female killer. Mary Bell was born on May 26, 1957 in Corbridge, Northumberland, England. She was her mother Betty's second child, and Betty was just 17 years old when she gave birth to Mary. Betty worked as a sex worker and spent most of her time away from her children. Mary's father is believed to be William Billy Bell, a violent alcoholic and criminal. According to her aunt Issa, Betty did not even want to hold Mary when she was born. Throughout her childhood, Mary frequently suffered injuries and household accidents while alone with her mother, which led her family to believe that either her mother was deliberately negligent or intentionally attempting to harm or kill her daughter. On one occasion, Betty dropped Mary from a first floor window. On another occasion, she gave her daughter sleeping pills. Betty also once sold Mary to a mentally ill woman who was unable to have children of her own, causing her older sister Catherine to travel alone to bring her sister home. Despite this, Betty refused to let other family members gain custody of Mary. According to Mary, Betty, who was working as a dominatrix, allowed or encouraged her clients to sexually abuse her. Mary grew up in poverty in a working-class neighborhood in Newcastle, England. Family members say that by the age of two, Mary had already started to act cold, detached, and withdrawn. Mary was described as very manipulative and intelligent. She was known to be violent and dishonest as well. The violent streak began when she was still a toddler. Her family said she frequently lashed out and hit them. She was known to fight with other children and attempted to strangle her classmates and playmates on several occasions. Mary was also prone to mood swings and chronic bedwetting. One of her few friends was 13-year-old neighbor Norma Joyce Bell. Though the girls had the same surname, they were not related. On May 11, 1968, a three-year-old was found wandering and bleeding from his head near St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood. He told police he had been playing with Mary and Norma when he was pushed from the roof of an air raid shelter, but he did not know which of the girls pushed him. That same evening, the families of three young girls complained to police that Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they played. Both Norma and Mary were interviewed and claimed that they found the boy already bleeding. Norma, however, did admit that Mary had quote, put both her hands round the girl's throat and squeezed, end quote. Due to Mary and Norma's ages, they were given a warning, though other authorities were notified of Mary's violent behavior. Just weeks later, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in the bedroom of a condemned home in Newcastle. His body was found that same day by three children. Martin was lying on his back with his hands above his head. There were also specks of blood and foam around his mouth. As a local workman was attempting CPR, Mary and Norma arrived on the scene but were quickly told to leave. Since there were no signs of violence or injury, Martin's death was ruled an accident. The next day, Mary and Norma broke into and vandalized a nursery school. School supplies and cleaning products were thrown around and notes were left behind. The notes were clearly in a child's handwriting and included lots of profanity. 
One note read, quote, we did murder Martin Brown, end quote. And another said, quote, I murdered so I may come back, end quote. Mary would also go on to journal about Martin's death for a school assignment. On July 31st, 1968, Mary strangled three-year-old Brian Howe in an industrial area where local children often played. She attempted to cover up his body with grass and a pair of scissors were found near his body. Mary would return to the scene after her crime to mutilate Brian's body. Brian had puncture marks on his thigh. His genitals were partially mutilated, and it appeared as though the letter M was scratched on his stomach with a razor blade. The community was shocked and frightened from these crimes. The relatively small amount of force used to murder the children led the coroner to conclude the murderer was another child. Law enforcement questioned local children, and Mary and Norma's odd behavior stuck out. Norma seemed almost excited by the murder and smiled throughout her questioning, and Mary was evasive. Mary continued to behave strangely and told police that she saw an eight-year-old boy with Brian on the day he was killed and that the boy hit Brian and was playing with a pair of scissors. This boy had had an alibi and Mary unknowingly implicated herself since the scissors were not mentioned to the public. On August 4th, Norma's parents contacted the police. During her interview, Norma claimed that Mary confessed to killing Brian and took her to his body. Mary allegedly said she enjoyed squeezing the child's neck and strangling him. Mary was questioned again and denied everything, but would later admit to being present during Brian's murder, claiming that Norma was the killer. The next day, Norma was questioned again and admitted to being present when Mary had actually strangled Brian. According to Norma, when the trio was alone, Mary, quote, seemed to go all funny, end quote, pushing Brian into the grass and attempting to strangle him before telling Norma, quote, my hands are getting thick, take over, end quote. Norma then ran from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. A forensic examination of clothes owned by both girls revealed the gray fibers discovered upon Brian's body were a precise match to the woolen dress owned by Mary. The maroon fibers upon his shoes were a precise match to a skirt owned by Norma. Furthermore, the same gray fibers had also been found upon the body of Martin Brown. On the day of Brian's funeral, a detective saw Mary standing in front of his family's home, laughing and rubbing her hands together as the coffin was walked out. Both Mary and Norma would be arrested and charged with two counts of manslaughter. Leading up to this trial, Mary admitted to writing the notes found at the vandalized nursery school and said she wrote them for a quote-unquote giggle. Children also came forward claiming to have heard Mary say quote-unquote I am a murderer. While awaiting trial, Mary made strange comments to the prison guards, including, quote, I like hurting little things that can't fight back, end quote. Mary's lack of emotions, introspection, and defensiveness led psychiatrists to believe she suffered from psychopathic personality disorder. Norma's psychological evaluation revealed that she was intellectually delayed, submissive, and showed emotion towards the crimes. Against protests from both defense counsel on the first day of the trial, Justice Ralph Cusack waived the defendant's right to anonymity on account of their age. 
Because of that, the media were allowed to publicize the names, ages, and photographs of both girls. Both girls testified during the trial implicating each other in the crimes. It was noted, however, that the girls still seemed to have a strong bond between them. Court-appointed psychologists testified that Mary displayed classic symptoms of psychopathy and therefore was not completely coherent nor responsible for her actions. It was alleged that during the murders, Bell would tell her victim he had a sore throat, which she would massage before proceeding to strangle him. On December 17, 1968, the girls were read their verdicts. Norma was acquitted of all charges against her. At just 11 years old, Mary was convicted of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility based on the psychological assessment presented at trial. She was to be, quote-unquote, detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. The judge, Mr. Justice Cusack, said, quote, This girl is dangerous and therefore steps must be taken to protect other people, end quote. It was agreed upon that Mary needed to be rehabilitated, but it was clear that no one knew exactly what to do with her. Mary was sent to several different youth facilities. At one of the facilities, she was the only girl out of 24 inmates and claimed she was sexually abused by staff and other inmates. In 1977, Mary would briefly escape from an adult prison to which she had just been transferred but was quickly caught. Two years later, she was transferred to another facility in an effort to prepare her for eventual release. Beginning in November 1979, she worked as a secretary, then as a waitress in a cafe in York Minster under supervision guidelines. In 1980, at the age of 23, after serving just over 11 years, Mary was released and was granted anonymity, including getting a new name, allowing her to start a new life. Upon her release, a spokesman was quoted as saying, quote, Bell wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone, end quote. In 1984, Mary gave birth to a daughter. In 1988, local officials who had been made aware of Mary's whereabouts revealed her locale and identity, and there was a large outcry from the local community. This media revelation forced Belle and her 14-year-old daughter to leave their home and be driven to a safe house by undercover officers. Her daughter had not been aware of her mother's past until then. Both mother and daughter later relocated to another area of the United Kingdom. The right to anonymity granted to Bell's daughter followed her birth was originally only extended until she reached the age of 18. However, on the 21st of May 2003, Bell won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss, president of the Family Division, granted the injunction forbidding media disclosure of the Bell's current identities and whereabouts under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. This so-called Mary Bell order did not ultimately keep Mary and her daughter anonymous for long. According to a special report by The Observer, the injunction, quote, has not stopped journalists from stalking her as she moved from town to town, nor from offering her large sums of money to tell her story, end quote. 
That same year, the book Cries Unheard from Greta Surly was released. It focused on Mary's life and was very controversial. It was later revealed that Mary received money for her participation in the book. In 2009, Mary became a grandmother and her grandchild will also remain anonymous. June Richardson, the mother of Martin Bell, responded by saying, quote, a child is a blessing. She took my blessing and left me with grief for the rest of my life. I hope when she looks at this child, she remembers the two she murdered. I will never see a grandchild for my son. I hope every time she looks at this baby, she realizes what my family are missing out on because of what she has done, end quote. Mary is now 66. She remains Britain's youngest female killer. Del, what are your thoughts on the story of Mary Bell? First, she is creepy. Just the way she described things, the way she was so callous. And in a way, it seems that she manipulated another child to be implicated in murders is absolutely just sad and sickening. I do not agree with her identity being anonymous. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I think that this level of protection for a multi-murderer is something that would be unacceptable in any other context. I slightly understand protecting her identity when she was under 18, but her being able to keep it after she was over 18, her children being able to keep it, her grandchildren being able to keep it, that is absolutely ridiculous. At the end of the day, she is a murderer. And I thought that we lived in a society that said being a murderer is wrong. And I'm not calling for her to be harassed or anything like that. But the level of protection that the UK High Court is giving her, it just, it makes my blood boil. And I definitely sympathize with June Richardson when she says that she hopes that Mary is looking at the children in her life and realizing that she stole that from other families. And she's 66 now. I don't know how much she thinks about her previous crimes, but hopefully that is definitely something that is going to haunt her for the rest of her life. What are your thoughts? I have complicated feelings. I do think Mary is kind of creepy, but I feel like that really goes to show that something in her was unwell. And I think that this is like very obviously like a situation of the nurture being what was wrong in her life. I really do think her mother's neglect and abuse is what caused her to become a killer And I do feel really bad for her for that. And I don't understand why parents do that. And if her family was offering to take Mary and to raise her, I don't understand why she just didn't do that. That being said, she obviously did still kill two children. She very much enjoyed it. I mean, just imagining her like rubbing her hands together and laughing on seeing a coffin of a child is so disturbing and almost unbelievable. I don't know how I feel when it comes to the anonymity, and we'll get more into that a little later in the episode. 
And I do think rehabilitation will also get more to rehabilitation of criminals, specifically child criminals, is good. I guess I won't say anything until we get into that. I don't know how I feel about the anonymity because I can't imagine her having a normal life if not and have her child having a normal life. And the way I think of it is her child did not do anything and they don't deserve to be harassed and bullied and all the other stuff that we know would happen. But like you said, though, they are kind of going out of their way to help someone that was a criminal and did kill two young children in a particularly personal and I would say brutal way and did have a history of violence. I don't know. I just feel I see both sides of the situation. I can see Mary wanting, you know, to start a new life. I guess she has the right to do that. Really, she served her time. You could say she went through rehabilitation and has proven to not be a reoffender as far as, you know, we know. But I also understand she did commit a crime. She ruined these families, like Martin Brown's mom said. I mean, how can, you know, the grief she still must feel how many years later is so sad. I don't know. It's, I think, a really complicated thing. We wanted to dive in a little bit into children that commit homicide. And it is pretty rare. According to research from the National Library of Medicine, children who kill often experience psychological impairments and neurological disorders, poor impulse control, school failure, and truancy. Most have often experienced severe family adversities like domestic violence, neglect, child abuse, substance misuse, maternal depression, and absence of fathers. A comprehensive study from 1997 found 15 primary factors associated with juvenile homicide offenders in the 1990s. These factors belong to five broad categories, the situation, societal influences, resource availability, personality characteristics, and cumulative effect. A child serial killer can differ from an adult serial killer in the fact that their fantasies are developed as mechanisms in defense of existing traumatic realities that they are denying and not accepting. The imagination creates a fantasy on how the child can dominate over other people. These fantasies reach a peak and then it is time to act. Though evidence is limited, research has shown that with proper care and psychiatric treatment, children do not go on to reoffend later in life. Researchers Sula Wolf and Alexander McCall Smith say this should be taken into consideration within the criminal justice system. According to the Marshall Project, data showing that juveniles sentenced in the U.S. as adults are more likely to be rearrested and incarcerated than those sentenced in family court, regardless of the severity of their crime. And Illinois, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Mississippi, and Connecticut have raised the age of adult criminal responsibility in recent years, though all of those states have excluded at least some violent felonies, especially murder, from being processed in family courts. A report titled Children and Homicide, Appropriate Procedures for Juveniles in Murder and Homicide Cases argued that children should be treated differently from adults because they are developing and have a greater chance of improving their adjustment. The European Court of Human Rights recommended that the age of criminal responsibility be increased from 10 years old in England and Wales to 12 or 14. 
Professionals have argued that to limit the concept of culpability to intellectual understanding of quote-unquote right and wrong does not make sense as adults under extreme emotional arousal can act in ways they know to be wrong and later regret and children are even less able to control their impulses. The court stated that children under 14 should not have a public trial in any adult court. Wolf and McCall Smith say, quote, objectives of sentencing should be the rehabilitation, education, and social integration of the offender and the protection of society. The first, of course, promoting the second. Deterrence and punishment are not rational options, and politicians who seek to inflame public feelings in these distressing cases are being forced to recognize this, end quote. Del, what are your thoughts on all of this? And do you think anything can be done to improve sentencing and the juvenile justice system? I definitely understand that children as a mechanism of being children, their brains aren't fully developed, are less culpable for any crimes that they commit. I think that that culpability decreases with age. And I think that if the courts truly wanted to look at knowing the difference between right and wrong and brain development. That means people up to the ages of 25 wouldn't be fully culpable for crimes that they commit. And that's definitely not something that people are actually advocating for. When it comes to raising the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 or 14, we're now getting into high school ages. And do we really want to eliminate the criminal culpability for a 14-year-old? I don't know how wise that would be. I do, however, agree that Children under the age of 14 shouldn't be in a public trial. I don't think the adult court is really the right thing for them. But I inherently disagree with Wolf and McCall Smith, where they say that deterrence and punishment are not rational options. What is the point of arresting someone, putting them on trial, if it's not as a punishment? Then you're just arresting and putting someone on trial. Now, I think that, yes, include rehabilitation, education, social integration. Fine. Have all those things. But the reason why you're doing it is punishment, is to have recognition by that child that person, society, that this action was wrong. So the fact that they wave it off as not rational options, it's just ridiculous to me. It just doesn't make any sense. And them saying that politicians are just inflaming public feelings in distressing cases, what are you even talking about? You know, for all the faults that we can find of politicians, and we can find a lot of them, them listening to the constituents and making sure that their constituents' feelings are being heard, whether that is positive or negative, is a good thing. We wouldn't look at anything else with the sign of, oh, you're just inflaming public feelings. What are you even talking about? That doesn't make any sense. There's definitely improvements that are needed, but I don't think that just because someone is under the age of adulthood means that completely they're innocent and there's nothing that should be done to show them that their crimes are bad. We just need to work on 
making sure that we handle them with kid gloves and we, you know, hold their hand throughout the process. No, they need to know what they did was wrong. And if they are not set up to know what they did was wrong, then sure, you might have it in a case where some of them don't reoffend, but you are setting their psyche up to not really care about laws, about justice, and about the consequences of their actions. How do you feel? So I do think that there should be some type of punishment and include the rehabilitation and education within that, like you said. But I do find that point interesting about how like the concept of right and wrong is really like, I don't want to say subjective, but like, what does that exactly mean? And if adults are committing these crimes and they are allowed to act in certain ways, like they're emotionally, they should know right and wrong. I don't think we can hold children to that same standard. Yes, I do think they should be punished somehow and tried to be rehabilitated, but I thought that was a really interesting point and I hadn't looked at things that way. I do definitely agree that children under the age of 14, maybe even like 16, should not have public trials. So when it comes to what Wolf and McCall were saying about politicians kind of inflaming things, they I believe we're talking about the murder of James Bulger, which happened in the UK in the 90s. And it was a really high profile thing. I think it was also compared to that of Mary Bell, because this young boy, a toddler, was murdered by two 10-year-old boys. And I think I'm not 100% familiar with this case, but I think there was like a huge public uproar and a lot of politicians were involved with that. So... I can understand where they're coming from by saying politicians need to like stick to their job and then like the courts and professionals should stick to their job. I think that this also kind of stems back to like, you could argue too that it's like the mandatory minimums for certain crimes and like having that still include teens, youth, whoever, who are committing these crimes. I think that is more of where their argument was coming from, which I do understand I think this whole thing is really complicated. And like you were saying, like we should look at things differently because it's children. And we say this a lot on the podcast, but I think a lot of cases do need like a case by case basis of understanding like where the criminal is coming from, especially when it's children and what can be done to make them, you know, a productive member of society that will not reoffend and be violent and pose a risk to the public. Next, we'll get into anonymity for child criminals. Anonymity in criminal cases means someone's name, address, photograph, and other information that might identify them, such as their school or place of work, is not revealed in the newspapers, on television, or on the internet. There is a general rule that the press are not allowed to report the name of a child defendant appearing before a youth court i.e. for non-serious crimes committed by children aged between 10 and 17. However, for more serious crimes, like a kidnapping case, the judge decides whether the child remains anonymous. In the United Kingdom, those who commit a crime under the age of 18 are automatically granted anonymity when they appear in a youth court and are routinely granted the same if they appear at Crown Court. However, this expires when they become adults 
adults, meaning their name can be reported. Mary Bell's case was unusual as she was named to the public and then granted a new name and lifelong anonymity upon her release, which is rarely given out. In 2016, a UK government commission review recommended that all children criminals should be given lifelong anonymity to reduce reoffending rates. Ministers were also considering introducing legislation to indefinitely ban the identification of offenders who commit crime while under 18. Granting criminals particularly those who have committed crimes against children. Anonymity is done to protect the individual from stigma and help them resettle into society. The Just for Kids law charity said, quote, being named in shame for what they have done or accused of doing prevents them from ever being able to move forward, end quote. Penelope Gibbs, vice chair of the campaign group Standing Committee for Youth Justice said, quote, there is good evidence that that kind of vilification that is associated with a child that has committed a very serious crime being identified destroys those chances for rehabilitation, end quote. It is also thought of as, quote, unfair and often a breach of a person's human rights to allow people to suffer an additional punishment stemming from society's treatments towards those criminals, end quote. This topic came up once again in 2019 when a boy known only as RXG, who was convicted at 14 years old of a terrorist offense, was approaching their 18th birthday. The high court was asked to grant an injunction against anyone identifying him after he turned 18. Unlike others, the high court was not satisfied that there was a real and immediate risk of RXG coming to serious physical harm if his identity was released into the public domain. But in light of the evidence, the court found that identification would have a quote-unquote profound impact on his psychological well-being. It concluded that RxG's individual characteristics, vulnerability to exploitation, and the prospect of his rehabilitation tipped the balance in his favor. Legislation provides extended protections for children involved in criminal proceedings after the age of 18, but only if they are victims or witnesses, not defendants. The process of being granted anonymity and confidentiality as a minor is not always straightforward, but serious problems arise if the crime is still in the public consciousness by the time the convicted child turns 18 and reporting restrictions cease to protect them. In the age of the internet, many wonder if lifelong anonymity orders can realistically be held. When the first lifelong anonymity orders were made in the early 2000s, technology was very different. Media and public interest in high-profile cases remains long after convictions, and in the digital age, coverage can be widely accessed for years. The internet brings permanency of imagery and details that would not have been possible before news went online. Social media platforms also provide opportunities for people to share details, although doing so can result in members of the public being charged with contempt of court. When making its decision to grant RxG anonymity, the high court was shown evidence of the violence being threatened against him in comments on news sections and social media. Research has shown that comments can stir up anger in communities and leave children vulnerable to physical violence and mental abuse. Del, what do you think of lifelong anonymity? I think it might be clear <laughs> now. I definitely disagree with it. I don't think that we would look at any other case and say that a person should be shielded from the societal consequences of their crime. We don't do that for anything else. 
In fact, for some crimes, we do the complete opposite and we actually publish the information on the assailant. Why is this any different? I definitely understand that you want to protect people from harm and protect people from harassment and stigma. I understand that. I'm empathetic to that. But I just don't get how after we know that the person has committed a crime, they've been convicted, they served their sentence, why are we still trying to protect them? Why are we not using the resources to help their victims, to help the people that they've traumatized? Why are we jumping through hoops to protect the identities of terrorists and murderers? Like, I just don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense to me. What about you? I'm kind of in the middle. Like I said, I think it's a complicated topic. And this isn't something that's given out often. I agree with some of the points you made. Like, why are we protecting a terrorist, for example? Why we don't do this for other people? And frankly, like, if I found, you know, like, I feel like there is a little bit of like, the public needs to know who is around them. Because there isn't enough evidence or research on like child killers, even though I guess from the few that have been looked at, there aren't a lot of rates of reoffending, but that's not everybody. So like, we don't know. That's the thing with rehabilitation. Like I totally support it, but we just don't know like what the future holds. And frankly, if someone was a former terrorist or child was a killer as a kid, and then they like moved into my neighborhood, like I would want to know that. I think a lot of people would. And like you said, like, why are we kind of jumping through all of these hoops to support these people when there probably are other ways we could like systemic changes to go in and support people post conviction if we do want to make sure they don't reoffend and couldn't succeed in life to me maybe that's more worth the time and it would affect a lot more offenders than just these specific children committing these crimes I think talking about the evidence to show, like, is this person's safety in question? uh, That was kind of interesting to hear. And then the argument, too, about is this still in the public consciousness? Because, I don't know, like, when I think about Mary Bell, she was in jail or in facilities, whatever you want to say, for over 10 years. I do wonder how much in the public consciousness that would have been. I mean, I'm sure... If there had been headlines like Mary Bell released, you know, like that would have stirred up some public interest. People probably really would have been like trying to hunt her down. But part of me does wonder, like, sometimes things just blow over and maybe that would have blown over. I don't know. Um, Like I said, I'm all for supporting rehabilitation. I don't know if this is like the best way to do it. And in the case, like we mentioned of James Bolger, so his killers were granted lifelong anonymity. And one of them went on to reoffend again. And I think his defense team, part of their case was the argument of him having this anonymity was very hard for him to adjust to and to like have this kind of fake life. So I thought that was kind of interesting too, and not something you necessarily would think of in this conversation. But it surely can't be easy for everyone to go through. I don't know. I think maybe one of the ways to help end like this stigma and vilification too would be to talk more about like 
mental health or these like mitigating societal factors or family factors that do seem to come into play with these children that commit homicide. Like we were talking about to maybe have like some to have empathy for these people for what they had to go through, but then to also recognize like you committed a crime and you can't do this and you do need to be held accountable, whatever way that means. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the life and crimes of Mary Bell. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe. Thank you.